Here we are with another month and another Governing Chatters. I'm Emma Knights, the Chief Executive here at the National Governance Association. And like last time, I'm joined by my fellow members of our senior leadership team. So I have with me Emma, our Director of Professional Development. Hi, everybody. And Steve, our Director of Advice and Guidance. Hello there. And Sam, our Director of Policy and Information. Hiya. So it has been, hasn't it, a really busy term. Um, and just well done to all of you out there who have been governing. It's been such a testament, I think, to the um, strength and the resilience of governing boards and your senior leaders. Um, along, of course, with the work done by your staff that has really got us through um, the lockdown and the reopening of schools in the way um, that you have. And this month does seem a very long time. I think COVID does funny, time, funny things to time, doesn't it? Um, at some points, it seems to race by and other days seem very long and repetitive. Um, but if you remember, just after our last Governing Chatters podcast, we were, we were, when we were talking about schools reopening in September, we were still then waiting for the guidance from the Department for Education to, that would cover the full reopening from September. Uh, and when it arrived, uh, actually, it was comprehensive. And all the feedback that we had from members was actually that it was really well received. People were pleased to have it comprehensively in one place. Uh, and indeed, Steve had to turn it around really quickly. And I think it was the very same day on which it was issued that he was um, delivering a webinar about um, reopening. So do have a listen to that webinar if you haven't um, already done that. We're still getting a bit more guidance again this week. We had some more that covered the expectations for all staff to be returning in September because, of course, there have been changes in the shielding um, rules. So it did seem um, that we had been running to keep up with those constant changes and updates in, in guidance all term, and that it was our job to then turn those into bespoke guidance and advice, and indeed a whole series of virtual um, events for you. And I hope that was useful. So here we are about to begin August, and that's our chance, uh, isn't it, for all of us to take stock of where we are. Um, we look in really great detail at the rich data that's come from our annual governance survey. We update some of our information and guidance for you, um, and we look ahead to the new academic year, looking at those um, big strategic issues that uh, you're going to be facing with your schools and trusts. So, Steve, why don't we start um, with you first, because you've been spending a lot of time um, thinking about strategy and revising our absolute centrepiece um, of guidance, being strategic. How's, how's that been going? Um, that, that's, been, that's been going well. Uh, thanks, Emma. And it, it, I think the biggest challenge has been to try and sort of detach 
uh, the the thinking and, and the um, and the reacting to everything that, that's happened around COVID from this uh, you know from this very thoughtful piece of work, which is our being strategic guidance. But I actually stopped worrying about that after a while because I thought, you know what, the, the, these these things are so intertwined. Uh, I should be thinking of them in, in parallel. So I, over the last couple of days, as I've started to to think more about our being strategic guidance, for those of you who are listening in, I'm sure you're familiar with it. It is amongst the most popular and influential pieces of NGI guidance that that we publish. Um, so updating it is always going to be a significant moment at uh, Governor HQ, although we're not in Governor HQ at the moment, we're all in our respective houses in our virtual Governor HQ. Um, but I think even more so now, given what schools and trusts have been through during the pandemic, um, it, it's important for us to, to reflect uh, and think about being strategic alongside the tasks that school leaders and boards have in sort of recalibrating their settings from September. And I think what makes this update so timely and I'm, why I'm so pleased that we're doing it now is it allows us to put values-driven leadership at the forefront of creating strategy. And you mentioned the webinars that we've delivered over the last few months. And, and I've said on all of those, uh, just how privileged we are to be part of an organisation that supports um, leadership in schools and to have that first-hand insight uh, and experience of the extraordinary things that, that schools have been doing over the last few months uh, and the effort and the motivation of teachers, you know, supporting the most vulnerable kids, reaching out to their communities and, and supporting each other. And, and all those things, it, you know, it really comes home to me. It hasn't been motivated by a desire to to meet a, a set of targets, to meet a set of data standards or, you know, what you might call primary goals. They've been motivated by the values, the core values of the organisation and, and the, the culture of the organisation, you know, whether it's a school or a trust. And these are things that I know you've spoken quite passionately about, Emma, over, you know, many years. Uh, the things that are rooted in, you know, what we, basic humanity, you know, ethics and, and, and citizenship. Uh, and that's what we really want to convey more of in the updated uh, being strategic guidance, uh, governing with that moral purpose, putting mission, values and culture at the forefront of your strategy development. And, and I'm really excited to be working with colleagues, obviously, in the team, but also our partners at ASCOL and NAHT uh, to get that completed in the next few weeks and, and uh, so that it's ready for the beginning of the autumn term when when boards having those really important discussions. Absolutely. Uh, I think that comes at a really good point because I think it is quite tricky at the moment for, for governing boards to balance the immediate things that need to be um, done in order to help uh, pupils settle back in school again versus the stepping back and, and looking at the bigger bigger picture. But you're so right to emphasise that, that point about, you know, what drives everybody, in fact, involved in education, but, but particularly volunteers who are doing this to, to give something uh, back. So we then had, at the end of this phenomenally busy term, we were all taking a sort of breath, big sigh of relief um, after our final newsletter of the academic year went out on the Friday. 
And then over the weekend, the department published all its information um, about funding um, and also uh, about pay. So we then spent the next few days double checking that and really getting to grips with that. So Steve, those announcements, particularly around staff pay, are also something that governing boards are going to have to grapple with on their return. Oh, you're absolutely right, Emma. And you you know as well as I do that in in governance, in school governance, we're we're never too far away from a challenging conversation about funding and budgets, are we? And although there are there are some positives, I think to be taken from the the funding and and pay announcements. Uh, that that you've just mentioned. And for those who don't know, we did receive confirmation last week that the government has accepted all of the school teacher review bodies' recommendations on on teacher pay. Um, And what that means, you know, in in broad terms is that uh, starting salaries for new teachers will be considered, uh, will be increased by a considerable uh, 5.5%. And and the upper and lower boundaries for, for all teachers pay will increase by uh, 2.75%. And, and what that equates to for those of you who, who uh, you know, crunch the numbers and are on finance committees is approximately a 3.1% increase in your, your school, school's overall pay bill. Uh, and that's going to be funded uh, by your school. There is no additional uh, money um, to, to, uh, to support these, these pay increases. Uh, so if you're a maintained school um, or an academy who employ teachers under the school teachers condition uh, paying conditions framework, then you'll be you'll be having to fund uh, those those ingre- increases. So it, it, it kind of feels that we're you know, we're, we're a little bit back in familiar territory where we were very pleased as as others were in the sector that the government had delivered on the on the second year of their three year. Uh, funding settlement, so just over uh, 2.2 billion pounds in in the second year of that seven three-year seven billion uh, funding settlement for schools, which was which was welcomed. It didn't didn't bring doesn't bring us back to where we were before uh, a decade ago in in terms of real real-term school funding. So we still have a little way to go, but nevertheless, um, a very welcome uh, a welcome. Uh, development. I think the, the the issue really for governing boards that we all face is because it, the pay increase isn't fully funded. Um, we, we're in a situation where um, we're going to have to uh, compete again with rising costs. We don't quite know how much of an impact COVID nineteen um, opening at full capacity from September will have in terms of additional costs, cleaning those kind of things. Uh, and so then if you factor in the pay as well uh, and the historic underfunding, um, you, you know, it does feel like we're, we're in a situation again where governing boards are worrying about balancing their budgets at, without adversely affecting the quality of their education officer, offer, rather, which is, why we, which is why we govern. You know, it's a familiar territory, as I say, the things that we've consistently campaigned over. Uh, and I think that, that there's a lot to watch in the funding space from September, and I, I will be clarifying our own thoughts on this, and, and um, I'll be trying to do that through a through a blog that I'm hoping to publish uh, on the NGA website in the next few weeks. Great. I think that will be really helpful uh, for governors and trustees 
out there. It's perhaps something we haven't thought as much about this term when other things have taken, or last term, when other things have taken precedence. And you're absolutely right. It's um, really getting back to the business of um, very uh, um, important uh, basic governance, one of the core functions of the of the governing board, making sure we're schools and trusts are financially uh, stable. So absolutely, we're expecting to have lots of conversations, I think, over the coming term um, around this. The next thing we were thinking we ought to do uh, a little bit of a catch up on is actually the catch up funding itself. Last time when we had uh, our conversation, we had the ballpark figures. We knew there was going to be uh, a billion pounds um, out there. Some of it paid directly to schools and some of it funding a national scheme. But we've been hearing a little bit more recently, haven't we, Sam? Do you want to uh, fill us in on where we are now? Mm, thanks, Emma. Um, yeah, ab- absolutely. I think I think first of all, we have to really come back to thinking about why why we're spending so much time talking and thinking about this. And the Education Endowment Foundation have have suggested that up to ten years of progress towards equality and education outcomes could be wiped out as a result of the uh, pandemic. So you know this this is huge, and and obviously we've had the 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 announcements of of the funding um but we were awaiting further details we've had further details of that in fact we've had um updates on that just just this week in fact and alongside that uh universal offer of the 650 million um which is seen as a as a one-off we've also got the rollout of the national tutoring program which is that 350 million emma and just this week the education committee the education select committee uh, published a letter from the minister of state for schools nick gibb in response to questions that they had on the one billion covid catch-up fund which i think really reflected quite well a lot of the questions everyone had um, and within that, one one of the things we have now been told is that universal amount, um, the school's allocation will be calculated on a per pupil basis, providing each mainstream school with a total of £80 for each pupil in reception through to year 11. Um, and that essentially means that a primary school of, say, 200 pupils will receive 16,000, while a secondary school of 1,000 pupils will receive 80,000 pounds. So that gives you some perspective of, of the money we're, we're talking about here. Um, but I think it's worth saying that throughout this discussion, there's been different people saying, questioning how the money's targeted and, and whether it's been targeted um, appropriately. David Laws recently um, from the Education Policy Institute came out and said that the cash was badly targeted. Uh, and is unlikely to prevent a widening of the learning gap between children from poor backgrounds and other pupils. So, you know, we've got somebody there who's who, who's coming from a very high-profile organisation that's looking at this every day, um, really concerned about how the money is being targeted. So we, we, we need to kind of come back to this and reflect on that. I think that's really important. Now, the £350 million for the National Tutoring Programme is arriving later than we'd hoped. Um, It's starting in the second half of the autumn term, Um, but there have been reports that it won't really go full scale until, um, uh, so to speak, until until 2021 kicks in. Um, So I know that some people will be disappointed about that, Um, 
uh, and uh, we'll, we'll, I'm sure we'll, we'll get more details in um, as as the new term um, kicks in in September. Um, but that national tutoring program um, does uh, now include um, a fund for 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 the 16 to 19 bracket, which of course it didn't when we spoke about this last time, Emma. And and, and essentially what we've seen is there's a the announcement of a new 96 million that will um, that will be specifically targeted at that 16 to 19 bracket. I say new; it, it's it's actually being taken from that 350 million tutoring program. Um, that, that we uh, that we talked about before. Um, now, the five to sixteen program will essentially have two pillars, and that that's uh, a tuition uh, pillar, so to speak, and the academic mentor. So the tuition element um, will, uh, will will apply to schools in all regions, and they'll be able to access that subsidised tuition from an approved list of tuition organisations. But like, like I was saying earlier, that is very much targeted at, at, at the most disadvantaged um, pupils. And the Education Endowment Foundation will be working with the department to deliver that as part of the programme. So um, there's been some movement on that, um, but the tutoring organisations will be invited, invited to apply from September onwards, and um, we'll, we'll see real movement in that uh, actually on the ground from November. Um, the academic mentor element is slightly different, and that's really for schools in the most disadvantaged areas who will be supported to employ in-house academic mentors to provide small group tuition uh, for their pupils through an intensive learning support um, but that won't be in place until October at the earliest and Teach First um, is the organisation that will be supporting um, the, the department through the recruitment, the training and the placement of the first cohort of those academic mentors um, and we know that their salaries will be subsidised by the government um, and some of those academic mentors will start working, like I say, in schools from October half term, um, with the remainder starting in uh, the spring term 2021. So lots of um, different details that are starting to unravel. And we know in terms of those academic mentors that really the target there is for a, a pool of high caliber academic mentors that um that can be serving in those disadvantaged communities and the ca the candidates for those roles need to be uh, have a qualified teacher status or an undergraduate degree as well as at least a grade four equivalent in their English and maths GCSE so it gives you an idea of the kind of people that are being targeted for that now, one thing that I really wanted to mention, Emma, is that, that Nick Gibb actually um, mentioned the role of governors and trustees in relation to the uh, catch-up funding. Um, so I think it's only right and proper that we think about what, what he said, and that was that um, given their role in ensuring schools spend funding appropriately and in holding schools to account for educational performance, governors and trustees should scrutinise schools approaches to that catch-up from September, which I'm sure we would have all been thinking we'd be doing that anyway. Um, and that includes their plans for and use of that, that catch-up funding in, in particular. And this should include considerations of whether schools are spending this funding in line with their catch-up priorities, how they're doing it, and ensuring appropriate trans transparency for parents, which I think really links in with our fourth uh, core function, Emma, for ensuring stakeholders' voices are, are heard. Um, so uh, I think really 
um, we've we've come some way since we last spoke um, uh, through our last governing chatters discussion. Um, but actually, I'm sure um, uh, as as the next few weeks and, and months goes along, we'll have a lot more to say, particularly on on. Uh, how the rollout of those two particular pillars of that national tutoring program is actually going to uh, work out in practice. Um, I also wanted to say something really about how this links in more widely with um, uh, exams and qualifications and thinking uh, how the the recent uh, um, uh, Things that, we, that we've been talking about have, have impacted directly on on disadvantaged pupils and and exams and their qualifications. Uh, again, the Education Select Committee, Select Committee, who've been very very busy actually recently, um, have released a report called "Getting the Grades They've Earned," um, which which I would encourage you to read that if you haven't seen it. And that looked um, at what Ofqual have been proposing, what they've been doing, and it issued a call to Ofqual to demonstrate how they've ensured a level of fairness for standardised uh, grades. Um, so I know that that would be a concern that many of our listeners will have uh, as well. Um, well. I guess really one thing I just wanted to say quickly um, on on um, results day itself is ASCO have published a great guide um, for um, school leaders, which NGA uh, uh, have, have fully endorsed. So do have a look at that um, and encourage your school leaders to look, to look at that because we know that this will be a results day unlike any other really. And there'll be lots of people that are, are, are perhaps quite anxious about how that day will be handled. So do have a look at that guide um, if you can. I think, Emma, that's, that's probably all, all about all you need to hear from me on, on that. Thank you, Sam. I'm sure that um, governors and trustees, particularly of secondary schools, will really be thinking uh, a lot about how to approach results day. You know, as you say, a results day like like no other. Um, and at first, I think people thought young young people might be celebrating and not having to sit e exams, but it's given a whole range of other issues, hasn't it, and problems for everyone concerned to to deal with. Um, and we've had those reports recently, haven't we, that um, a lot of the teacher assessed grades are going to be um, marked down, as it were, uh, which is going to be difficult, I think, for everybody involved or potentially difficult for, for everyone involved. And although there's been um, uh, statements about young people not missing out this year, there's clearly a worry um, that particularly students in those schools that don't have um, previously a good academic academic record, um, that their grades may have been marked down to previous year's um, uh, levels, when of course we know cohorts differ um, from year to year and particularly in those schools that are that are on the rise. So yes, that's, that is definitely um, a day to be approached with a lot of um, uh, thought. And in terms of your catch-up, um, uh, comments, I, th I think a lot of us were a little bit uh, disappointed at the sort of pushback of the schemes from September to mid-October. And I think what that just shows, doesn't it, is how important the work that schools and trusts themselves 
um, will do. Um, because of course, schools um, still have the pupil premium and spending that in the best possible way to, to help disadvantaged children catch up is probably this year, you know, more important um, than ever. And also there's been quite a lot of conversation about the role of um, teaching assistants with a number of commentators saying, well, actually, teaching assistants who are doing their jobs well are actually fulfilling many of the roles that academic mentors um, may be filling. So there's a, a real need, I think, for school leaders to, again, look at that um, Education Endowment Foundation, the EEF um, guide. They've produced really good stuff on using um, teaching assistants well for, for, for catch-up. So that's something to think about so that you can start early on and not be waiting for for funding or national initiatives uh, to arrive like the cavalry. And this week, we also had the story um, coming from the BBC uh, about uh, exclusions. And it fits really with the conversation, if you joined us for last month's Governing Chatters, um, about Black Lives Matter and the work that um, we're doing here and will continue to do uh, about diversity um, and racial equality. Uh, but the report is about the fact that black pupils um, face uh, treble exclusion rates in some parts of England. And exclusions is something, Emma, that you've been um, thinking about and working on quite a bit this term. So why don't you uh, tell us something about that? Thanks, Emma. Um, yes, we've been, um, I suppose, looking into uh, the, the most recent um, results and having a look at how trends are um, progressing. So we've been finding um, that the fixed term um, exclusion rate has been increasing for the last six years and it continues to be on that upward trajectory. Uh, exclusions um, for the last two years, permanent exclusions have been fairly static. Um, but you're right, with regard to those exclusions, actually, there are certain groups of children and certain characteristics that are perhaps overrepresented, which is worrying. Um, so, in particular, uh, boys age 14 um, are more likely to be excluded. And, and within that, uh, yes, in certain areas, uh, black boys also uh, really high on the list is um, children with Gypsy Roma or traveller children of Irish heritage uh, also really likely to be excluded, as well as those who are eligible for free school meals or have a special educational need are slightly overrepresented as well. So really vulnerable groups um, when we look at those characteristics. And yet, I suppose our system, for whatever reason, is perhaps making them even more vulnerable by sort of not having that protective mechanism of making sure we're keeping them in school. And I suppose the stuff that we've been doing is working with some boards and some local authorities to have a think about what are the sorts of things that we'd really like all schools, great schools do this already, but what would we really like all schools to be doing before they get to that very last resort of either a fixed term or a permanent exclusion? Um, so, you know, 
the the support that governors, I suppose, would monitor through the behaviour policy and that they should see happening in their schools could range from a whole uh, variety of things like individualised behaviour plans with specific targets and rewards for particular children, uh, time out and positive behaviour management strategies that are age appropriate, uh, the use of choices and consequences, uh, lots of schools have got counselling or mentoring support for one-to-one um, scenarios that, that can be helpful. Uh, smaller groups that focus on behaviour management techniques is something that we've seen used to, to good effect. Involving external support specialists is ever more important as internal school resources have been stretched. So um, using educational psychologists, behaviour support specialists or education welfare officers, if and where they're available. We know that that, that um, access to those services is varied, isn't it, dependent on area. But there are also things like short time accessing outreach from an alternative provider to support behaviour modification. Um, and I suppose a little note on that as, as chair of a pupil referral unit myself, that it's really key that the governors of their mainstream setting continue to touch base about those children that are accessing alternative provision because they still remain the responsibility of that host school to make sure that actually everything is being provided as it should be wherever that child is accessing their education. Um, We've talked at length as well about specific CPD to skill up staff internally so that they feel more confident to meet the needs of children with behavioural support needs. Um, Persistent breaches of sort of behaviour policy, low level disruption um, accounts for over a third of the children who are excluded and quite often that behaviour can actually be a sort of symptom of something that that is is wrong either in their personal lives or that they're not coping. Perhaps it's an indication that they've got a special educational need that hasn't been identified. So I suppose really trying to encourage governors to really make sure that these things that are outlined perhaps in their behaviour policy or if not for them to add into the behaviour policy, that these interventions have been explored fully Um, before it gets to the exclusion and if indeed it does get to the exclusion that when they're at that panel sort of 15 days later that they are really kind of probing that because the vast vast majority I suppose as you would expect and is right of exclusions are upheld by the governing board but when an independent review is conducted almost 20% of them are asking the board to reconsider either because process wasn't followed or these types of interventions weren't explored with families and children um, before they arrived at that decision. Thank you. So it is yes, so important that we actually get this right for each and every uh, child in the school. And you've just reminded me, actually, Emma, talking about this, um, that uh, the ethical leadership 
Pathfinders, we extended for an extra term because obviously COVID term wasn't <laughs> the right time to be finishing off our, our Pathfinder uh, project uh, with those schools and trusts who are using the framework for ethical leadership. And you speaking about this has just reminded me of the um, really um, inspiring project that there is in Warwickshire. Um, and that's one of our blogs uh, on ethical leadership because all the secondary schools in the area, both the um, academies and the maintained schools, have come together um, in order to work with all the young people who are um, in danger of being um, excluded and, and make sure that nobody, no um, child falls um, falls between the cracks, as it were. So it's, uh, I, I really recommend people have a, have a look at that if, if things of that nature aren't happening um, in your area. We have um, also put all of these suggestions and findings into a bit of a 10 minute learning link module. It kind of references the Timpson review. So there's evidence in there about actually how exclusion um, has a further negative impact upon children um, who are permanently excluded from school. Um, and it's supposed to be a real sort of think piece. So there's a bit of a case study um, in there. It's, it's a very different piece of e-learning and it, it, I'm sure it won't be for everybody. Um, but it, it's really its purpose is to, to challenge our thinking. So where we think, gosh, that young person is really being a pain. They're really difficult to manage. Wouldn't it just be a lot easier for the rest of the children in school and the staff if they weren't here? Um, it actually sort of challenges that thinking to say, you know, look at it from a different perspective as, as your duty um, as a governor is to do. Thank you. So yes, some of you I hope will be familiar with 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 Learning Link, our e-learning um, platform. But others of you who haven't heard of it um, before, uh, do have a look at what's um, on offer. Because again, obviously during during these times when we're all working from um, home, it has been um, very convenient for for those people that have access to it. So the last um, main topic I wanted to, to, to touch on uh, today, um, largely because um, I'm in the middle of updating our chair's handbook. So I've been thinking a lot about that role um, of chair, but also because I wanted to say um, thank you all. Um, so very much those of you that step up uh, to do that uh, job. It is incredibly time consuming, we know from our research, time to chair, uh, but also that responsibility that you carry to keep the governing board working well as a team to make sure the responsibilities are carried out. Um, and I think that really came um, you know, to a head this term when the decisions that governing boards were making were so absolutely um, critical um, for, for the pupils and staff. Um, of their institutions. So I know you don't do it in order to be thanked, but also an awful lot of you were thanking your heads and thanking your, your staff. And it, I think it just behoves us to turn that round and say, we really do understand the, the sort of care um, and, and thought and diligence that goes into doing um, what you do. And one of the things that I'm uh, trying to do at the moment 
moment um, is look and see whether there's any more we can add to the section that's all about distributive leadership, delegating some of those tasks so that you as chair don't uh, have to take the lion's share. Um, and one of the things we've been trying to talk more about at NGA is the role of vice chairs. Um, because they're not always perhaps um, used uh, to their full. Um, and certainly in some boards, uh, we're saying it's a really good idea to have two vice chairs to really spread that um, work around. But also it's about ideas, isn't it? And sharing and having a sounding uh, board that sometimes you as, as chair would just want to check your thinking um, with other people. So do have a real think as we go into this new term. Um, do you use your vice chair in a way that's really adding value to what the governing board um, is, is doing? Do you need a second vice chair if you don't uh, have a second? Uh, for example, that can be really helpful um, in succession planning because not every vice chair is going to step up to be chair for a, for a number of, of, of reasons. Their, their work commitments or their family commitments may not um, uh, allow them to take on that extra uh, responsibility. So having a second vice chair who may be willing in due course to step um, into that role can be really useful. So you may be thinking over the summer, you know, are you going to stand again as chair? And we've had a long held policy uh, that actually uh, chairs uh, should really think about how long is right for them to be in that role. And we suggest that if you have been doing uh, the job for, for four years um, or so, then think about how lo much longer you really feel that it's right for you to, to stay there. Has your relationship between, with the head teacher become too close, too cozy? Um, and we're really keen on um, chairs of boards um, who have served for six, seven, eight years in their school or trust to think about moving to another school or, or, or trust where your experience will be hugely useful. Um, and we know that lots of you do that. Uh, we know that a, a lot of our longstanding members, our really active members, have governed over the years in, in many schools in, in different settings and that you, you bring huge knowledge um, to us as a result um, of that. But if, if you're a chair that's been in a single school, then have a think about following that. Um, that example. So if any of you out there who are chairing have ideas that you um, are willing to share with your colleagues, then please feel free to um, contact me, send, send me um, an email or by any other any other means and you might find that your your suggestion um, finds its way into this September's edition of the handbook. One of the things um, that we're thinking of doing differently in the new academic year um, 
is because our virtual events have been so successful um, over the last term, and it's obviously so much easier for many of you to join those events for two hours uh, in the early evening rather than traveling um, long distances on a Saturday, we will be continuing a number of those virtual events um, into the future. And the first ones I'm thinking about are um, chairs events. Uh, we have been working with a partner called Forum Strategy, who are, are a development organization uh, focusing on executive leadership uh, within uh, Academy Trusts. And I've been presenting at their chairs um, seminars recently. And so from the new academic year, we're going to be offering those uh, together for members of both Forum Strategy and NGA. So please look out for those. But obviously, we also have members um, who chair maintain schools. So we're also going to make sure that we start similar seminars for those of you who are chairing in the maintain sector. So please, uh, again, look out uh, for those. And Emma, you also, uh, in your team, um, run the development programs for chairs. Would you like to... Um, add something about those now yeah we're we're really excited actually because we've had a great sign up on the website over the last sort of four weeks or so um because uh, chairs and indeed their vice chairs as you were mentioning emma really kind of relish the fact of being able to access two places that are funded by the department until march uh, 21 so there's there's that kind of plug for that please do, if you can, take up that funding while it's available for you and either a chair or vice chair, or as you suggest, Emma, a vice chair and an aspiring future chair um, to take up those places because we've been finding that when two people work together on the, the development programme, that actually there's that momentum and support of each other that actually makes... Um, the programme even more successful, especially if their clerk is accessing the programme or has accessed the programme um, at the same time as well. So we're, we're really pleased to be taking those online um, and we are delivering all of our usual online support um, or, or remote support, should I say, such as mentor calls, uh, an online evaluation of your board or of your own practice, depending on which development program you, you do. Um, but also now, our usual face-to-face -face sessions, there are either three or four face-to-face -face sessions, depending on the program that you do. Um, those are going to be um, online classroom, Zoom um, experiences now. So we are looking to make it as much like the face-to-face sessions as possible and we think that with the the technology we are going to be able to do that and the first of those actual face-to-face -face virtual sessions uh, will be taking place in September. 
Excellent. And we've had such good feedback um, from from those. I mean, it's really great to see um, from your team the uh, feedback that's sent from chairs and indeed from um, multi-academy trust boards that have done the board development programme. And this is you know, money that the Department for Education is providing for development. So I think it, it really does seem like a no-brainer for people to, to take that up. I mean, I am conscious that obviously as volunteers, we're then please saying, you know, give us more time so that you can develop um, in your role. But I think the experience of those who have done the programme over the last couple of years has been, it is worth the time invested um, in that. So again, thank you to those of you who do um, really take your development seriously enough to invest um, in this year-long um, program. So I hope that there will be more people who are joining up, uh, whether it's virtually or later in the year, if face-to-face -face sessions can, can resume. I think one of the uh, positives for next term is that there won't be any um, Ofsted uh, full inspections, although I'm sure you may have seen that Ofsted will be visiting a sample of schools. And just here for the record, um, I thought it was worth saying that we are doing uh, quite a lot of um, talking to both Ofsted and the Department for Education about how those visits will be conducted and particularly what sort of um, letter will be reported at the end of the visit because we think it's incredibly important and we know from feedback from our members that you also think it's incredibly important that these visits are done in the spirit of support and research and not as a um, quasi or mini mini inspection so we're absolutely on the case on that and I hope to be able to to bring you good news in the next governing chatters when we will be looking at NGA's priorities for the new academic year. So stay safe, have a really good break, enjoy the summer. I hope you recoup, recoup some of your energy because there will be a lot for all of us to be getting our teeth into in September. So thank you for listening and enjoy that summer. <laughs>